With grateful hearts we gather, O God. With expectant spirits, with hopeful imaginations. Allow us in these moments to feel your presence in a powerful way. And with honesty and the deepest of truth, inspire us in these moments. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Can we be honest? This is a question not just for us, but it's a question that's asked beyond us. Because as many of you know, in the broader society, there's this feeling that Christian people are sort of hypocritical. Not sort of, they are extraordinarily hypocritical. In fact, the word Hippocrates, Hippocrates is a word that merges out of Greek. It simply means actor. A person who is play-acting on a stage, wearing a mask, pretending to be something they're not. Part of the challenge we have is trying to be authentic in a world that expects inauthenticity, acting, pretending. And so the challenge we have is to lean into the real feelings that emerge out of tough times in life. This passage you heard from Jeremiah that Susan just read is not exactly something you read and say, well, I feel good. Now let's go out and enjoy life. These are hard words. This, this eighth chapter of Jeremiah emerges out of a, a flow of thought. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we went from the first chapter of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is called as a prophet, and he doesn't want to do it because he knows that's a hard job. He's like the rest of us. He wants to be popular and liked, and he knows these are hard times, and he doesn't want to have to speak the truth to the people who don't want to hear the truth. And yet, he becomes convinced through God's Spirit working in him, the power of honesty and the need to tell the truth and to be real and to express what is out there. We also took a trip a couple of weeks ago to the potter's house with Jeremiah where he witnessed the potter working at the wheel and the creation that was made, but then the, the need to remodel that creation and make it a re-creation. And then it emerges as a new creation. Part of the struggle that is going on in this eighth chapter of Jeremiah is this ebb and flow of hope and possibility with the crashing reality of how difficult life can be. And so in this passage, it is Jeremiah's contention that honesty is the best policy. This actually was Benjamin Franklin, Randall tells me, as we were preparing this together. But Benjamin Franklin, along with Jeremiah, realized that there is a real benefit to just telling the truth, being honest. And so what happens in this passage is Jeremiah is just letting it all hang out, not only from his own feelings, but scholars say most likely these words that we actually heard in the song the band played so well a moment ago, is there a balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? These were the hopeless words that Jeremiah wasn't making up. He was actually probably quoting the people that were surrounding him. Our lives have become chaotic. What do we do now? 
Who's going to help us? It is a, an honesty from the depths of desperation and hopelessness. Now, some of you have perhaps been listening to the Ken Burns or watching the Ken Burns special on country music. Now, country music is pretty good at being honest. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Sung by Hank Williams, all right. So uh, this whole series of this emergence of country music, uh, Ken Burns giving a great reminder that country music really was birthed about the same time as, in the African-American tradition, the blues. Why? Because it was in the, the 20s and 30s and people were struggling. Poor folks were increasingly feeling hopeless and sad and discouraged and frustrated. And with this same kind of feeling that emerges out of Jeremiah's context, these country music songs begin to flow out of the Dust Bowl experiences and the hard times in the South when people were really, really struggling with their existence, really wondering if they were going to be able to feed their kids, really wondering if they were going to be able to survive through the next season. And we forget before regi- uh, refrigeration what it was like when, when your crop failed, when you had a drought, and all of a sudden the food that you expected to have to carry you through the winter wasn't there. And the evidence is that that's exactly what's going on in Jeremiah in this eighth chapter. Uh, the, the harvest is ended, the summer is over, and we're not saved. There's been a drought. Now there's a famine. People can't feed their families. Is there a balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? What are we going to do now? Well, along with country music and the blues, there also began to emerge out of these experiences of despair and hope, not only music, but also people coped in ways sometimes with a sense of humor. And so humor is helpful when we're struggling, especially when we can make fun of ourselves. And some of you remember Rodney Dangerfield, and Rodney Dangerfield was an expert at saying, I get no respect, and talking about how messed up his life was and how difficult things were. Now, the thing about Rodney Dangerfield that was, was sort of askew in this in our Christian context is that he not only made fun of himself, but he also made fun of other people. And part of what we're realizing in our context that's highly biblical is that this is not funny. We shouldn't laugh. We can always laugh and should laugh at ourselves. That's redemptive and helpful. And if it's me, it's, my wife will say, very funny. But if it's you, it's not so funny. And in our Christian context, increasingly, uh, we don't need to use the term politically correct. We use the biblical term kindness. It's just kind not to laugh at and make fun of others. It's good and right and redemptive to laugh and be self-deprecating. The expert of this within the country music context, of course, was Minnie Pearl with the, the uh, price tag hanging from her hat. 
She was an expert, and people loved her. People loved Rodney Dangerfield, too. But Minnie Pearl, there was this, this connection that many folks had from the Grand Ole Opry that when she took the stage, people felt like she speaks truth for me. Her messed up life is my messed up life. This sense of humor is very helpful. Music speaks the truth. Country music, the blues. There's something in Jeremiah that really gets at this hard time in life that needs to be spoken. So the Bible is this powerful reminder. We can be honest with each other, and we certainly must be honest with God. Jeremiah carries us through, and there is a a hint, just a hint of hope, because the question is rhetorical. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the trajectory of Jeremiah clearly is moving in the the silent, quiet, but soon-to-come answer. There is. It's a whisper, but it's there. It emerges fully in our passages from the Psalms that were read a little bit earlier. And in those passages, there also lurks in the background this difficulty of life, the same kind of dynamics of concern about food sources, concern about family, concern about potential invasion, often in the history of Israel. Just the daily issues of trying to conduct oneself in the midst of hardness, And the psalmist says, life is hard. But I know that God is a God of justice and truth. And in spite of how hard my life is, you know what? I'm going to praise God anyway. I'm going to bless the Lord anyway. I'm going to have hope in spite of hope. Last night, several of us from our congregation had the privilege of being at Decatur First United Methodist at an event called Bearing Witness, where Austin Channing Brown said that in the context of her family growing up, her African-American context, she said her grandmother, often when the word hope was used, she would say, hope sometimes in the midst of hopelessness needs to be embodied. You have to live it out and believe with the psalmist No matter what the circumstances, I'm going to praise God anyway. On this platform uh, a couple of nights ago, we had uh, an amazing experience uh, hearing from Dr. Paul Brinson. And actually, before I tell you about him, I want to give some context. Uh, Fred Sampson was an African-American pastor in Detroit, Michigan, a huge church there. And I heard him preach when I was in seminary. And I'll never forget his words in giving the context of his life. He came from Alabama. His father was a sharecropper farmer. His grandfather had been a sharecropper farmer. Life was hard in Alabama. His great-grandfather had been an enslaved person. And as a part of that family tradition, they had a saying, defeat is not retreat. Failure is not final. And death with Jesus is not dying, it's a departure to a better place. Retreat is not defeat. Failure is not final. 
Death with Jesus is not dying, it's a departure to a better place. Now, in their context, from an enslaved person through two sharecropper farmers, and then in a northern migration with the rail line up to Detroit, in the hard context of, of, of that inner city place, Dr. Sampson talked about the fact that this is not escapist theology saying, well, I just can't wait till I die and go to be with Jesus. That's not at all when it says uh, departing and flying away. And failure is not final. Death with Jesus is not dying. It's a departure to another place. It is with the psalmist saying, in spite of all the data, in spite of all that I have around me that is negative and hurtful and hopeless, I'm going to praise God anyway. I'm going to embody hope. I'm going to live out the courage that I feel in my life through Jesus. Dr. Paul Brinson, who was on this platform uh, being interviewed, told the stories that were a part of the civil rights experience. He grew up with Dr. Martin Luther King at Ebenezer Baptist Church. He spent most of his young life moving in and out of Dr. King's house with the King family. And he shared this experience of time and again in the civil rights movement of being so discouraged and feeling like there was another setback and another setback. And this phrase, this, this sense, this perspective that retreat is not defeat. And failure is not final. Over and over again, they felt like that didn't work. Once again, it felt like a failure. But he kept saying over and over again, we knew this couldn't last. We knew that there were going to be good-hearted people that would rise up and stand with us. We knew that this wasn't going to be something permanent. And we knew that the trajectory of where we were headed was going to be good and right. But in the midst of the failure, we learned to praise God anyway. For death with Jesus was not dying. It's a departure to a better place. It is when we give our lives to Jesus, when we die to this life and give ourselves over to life with Jesus, this gives us the courage to move on. This helps us to embody hope. Now, I encourage you in a couple of nights on Tuesday night to come back in this room where uh, Nib Stroop and Catherine Meeks will be talking about their book, Passionate for Justice. And a woman by the name of Ida B. Wells, this is through the Georgia Center for the Book, and Deborah, I'm going to give you a shout out, these great opportunities to have the latest in literature emerging out of, out of our context. And in this space on Tuesday night, we'll be hearing about this book that Catherine Meeks and Nibs Stroop co-wrote. Nibs used to be the pastor at Oakhurst Presbyterian Church and has with Catherine Meeks, told the story of sort of an unsung hero of the early history of the, the very movement in the direction of civil rights. Ida B. Wells, and I have to confess to you, I was familiar with Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and a lot of heroes from early in our history. I had never heard of Ida B. Wells. In Passionate for Justice, it's amazing the stories that are told about this remarkable woman. In 1875, 
the Supreme Court had said that there no longer would be separate and equal. 1875, it said all public facilities had to be equal and equally accessed for all people. Well, Ida B. Wells was born in 1862, and so when she was 13, this proclamation was, was issued. Soon after, both her mother and her father died in an epidemic, and she was left with, with six siblings that she had to care for. So as a 16-year-old, she was responsible for caring for her family that she didn't want to be separated. As an 18-year-old, she was uh, having to buy a ticket every day to get on a train to go to her job to pay for her family. But in 1884, the 1875 ruling that there should be no separate and equal, that all people must be treated the same, was overturned by the Supreme Court. So in 1885, she bought a ticket, as she always had, to get on the train to go outside of Memphis to her job. The problem was that the Supreme Court ruling allowed for white people to take back over control of things, and they made all train cars segregated. So the conductor came walking through, and this 18-year-old woman is sitting there getting ready to go to her work to, pay, to, to, to be able to pay for her brothers and sisters that she's now caring for. And the conductor said, ma'am, you're going to have to move to the car that's only for black people. She said, I paid for this car. This is where I've always sat. And he said, you've got to move. This is no longer a space for you. And she said, I'm not going to move. This is 71 years before Rosa Parks. She said, I'm not going to move. I paid for this seat. He said, yes, you are going to move. And he started to forcibly remove her. Well, she fought back. So he got two other big, gruff men to come in and literally drag her off and throw her physically off the train. Ida B. Wells thought, this is not right. And as an 18-year-old, she sued the railroad. And she won. So in, in 1885, she comes back. She gets a $500 settlement from the railroad. And the railroad appealed the ruling. It went to the Supreme Court of Alabama, of Tennessee, sorry. Don't want to give Alabama a bad name. It went to the Supreme Court of Tennessee. This was in Memphis. And the Supreme Court of Tennessee overturned the ruling. Ida B. Wells said in that moment in her journal, I cannot tell you how discouraged I was. I felt so hopeless and sad. She said, everything I stood for and my people, I wanted to take all of us, and she used these words, and just fly away. Because I didn't know what to do now. Do you hear an echo of Jeremiah? My joy is gone. What am I going to do? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? How am I going to survive? And then with Jeremiah and the psalmist, Ida B. Wells now as a 19-year-old said, I'm going to praise God anyway. And I'm going to keep moving forward. And for the rest of her life, she continued to work and write so that even Susan B. Anthony an advocate for women's rights, 
said to Ida B. Wells, you've got to either choose speaking and writing and working for equal rights for women and for African Americans, or you need to be a mom. Listen carefully. You can't do both, Susan B. Anthony said. And Ida B. Wells said, watch me. And she took her kids with her on her speaking engagements as an African-American woman who was told by the whole society, you are not worthy, you are second class, as a woman and as an African-American person. And she said, you know what? I'm going to praise God anyway. And she kept on and kept on and kept on. And she almost single-handedly, in many cases, laid the foundation for the civil rights movement. And for people who came after her in this sort of unsung hero and were able to stand on her shoulders and say, we too are worthy of being heard. And we're going to praise God anyway. And yes, there is a balm in Gilead. And yes, there is a physician there. Let's pray together. Help us, O oh God, too, to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, with Jeremiah and with the psalmist, to be able to be honest and speak the truth and embody hope to be able to live lives worthy of our callings and know that you are that great physician. You provide the balm for our sin-sick souls. For the times where we feel so hopeless and hurting, you are all we need. Give us the wisdom and the courage to speak truth, to stand for hope, and to be people of love and peace and grace. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.